If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're talking about the ancient Egyptian queen Nefertiti. You'll be hearing from Aidan Dodson, an honorary professor of Egyptology at the University of Bristol, who recently published a new book on Nefertiti, exploring what we actually know about her life and death. Aidan was joined in conversation by our digital section editor, Rachel Dinning. So we're discussing the 18th dynasty of Egypt today, so specifically the reign of King Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti, who most people will be familiar with. Her bust was discovered in 1912 and she's sort of plastered all over any imagery about ancient Egypt. Um, So I suppose, can we start the podcast with you giving us a little bit of context um, about what was going on in Egypt during the time that Nefertiti and Akhenaten were in power? Because it was it was such a transformative time. They they did a lot of new things, didn't they? Well, basically, the period we're talking about is the late 14th century BC. And it was a very interesting time, both in Egypt and more widely across the ancient world. It was actually a remarkably peaceful period internationally. Um, They weren't having too many major wars for a change. Um, There was a lot of intellectual 
um, interface between the various great powers of the period, trading and a whole range of things. And against the background of this, we find a real social, religious and political upheaval taking place in Egypt. And it's not a a revolution from below, but one from above. And what happens is that the king, Akhenaten, decides, for reasons which are still a matter of debate, to completely throw Egyptian religion up in the air and start again, effectively, building belief around a single sun god known as the Aten, who had sort of been around for a while, but never as a major god. And so Akhenaten, as they basically throws everything up in the air and comes up with this entirely new religious setup. And to accompany that, he also revises Egyptian art and make and distorts everything which had previously been. In the past, Egyptian art had all been always been about showing people at their best. So no matter how old and fat you were, your statues showed you with a six-pack tummy um, somewhere in your, in your 20s. That was the normal case anyway. But now Akhenaten, who seems to have had a slightly unusual physique, produces a distorted form of Egyptian art so that rather than having a six-pack stomach, you have a, a beer belly in is the best way of describing it. Either men no longer have snake hips, they have a great swelling, almost female set of hips. Everybody has breasts. Faces tend to be gaunt and and with a, a sort of a lantern jaw. And it's almost the whole thing seems almost a caricature. And this exactly what all this means is a matter of debate from Egyptologists since we first discovered this weird art. And my own view is it's all part of this revolution which the religious stuff was also part of. It was saying, here's year zero, and here's in your face showing you that the world has changed. I almost sort of equate it to the punk rock era where to shock people was the important thing. You showed that things were not going to be the same again and that was very much how Egypt's um, the re- no, artistic and religious setup um, was changed. So it's this big cultural reset. We've gone from having like multi gods to this one god, the sun god, and this new type of artwork. This was all he was he was pressing the reset button almost. That's what we think might have yeah, been. I, I think it's a year zero. Yeah, you know, and again, looking in more modern terms, a cultural revolution almost. And so bringing it on to his wife Nefertiti, um, the, I suppose the big question about her is who was she and where did she come from what what do we know about her with certainty because there's so many myths about her but what do we know with certainty yeah. the only thing we know about Nefertiti is she was Akhenaten's wife if you want to be completely crude about it beyond that we can say what she wasn't she wasn't a royal princess because among her many titles there isn't the one of king's daughter which would be there if she was indeed a princess. And a number of Egyptian pharaohs did marry their sisters, but we know she certainly wasn't Akhenaten's sister. There are various possibilities, um, and the one which I tend to favour is that she was a first cousin of the king on his mother's side. Um, There is a whole 
almost dynasty of military officials from a city called Achmim in the middle part of Egypt who seem to have married regularly into the royal family and the overall um, context, including some titles of people who were around at the time, suggest that she was, I'd say that, a first cousin on, on Akhenaten's mother's side. What are some of the biggest misconceptions do you think that have been over the years about her as a as as a queen or even well as her role and how how she fit in this um dynasty? Well there are in various sort of myths around some of which have surrounded her origins. You know, some have insisted that in spite of what her titles say, she was a royal princess. Others have tried to make her a foreign princess because her name does mean the beautiful woman has arrived, and some people have tried to make too much of that. On the other hand, it's a perfectly common Egyptian name of that period, and the general idea is that, uh, that many names are sort of sort of thing which is said when the baby is born. So a beautiful young young girl has arrived is a perfectly reasonable kind of name for that. Beyond that, until fairly recently, she has been regarded really as almost a cipher. Um, her, the beautiful bust of her, which was found in 1912, has really just sort of made her an international glamour puss rather than actually being a a person who had thoughts, who had influence. There's been a view that sort of she must have been a supporter of her husband's religious and social um, revolution. But beyond that, not very much. And it's not really until until the last few years that we've started to realise there was rather more to her and also um, how her career actually went beyond being simply a king's wife. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, this is one of the main things that you discuss in in your book is how she was held in quite, you know, remarkably high regard. Well, there's there's two elements to this. First of all is during her period purely as Akhenaten's wife. Uh, We find her depicted in the pose of smiting Egypt's enemies, which is something which is never, ever found for any other queen of Egypt. We also find that on the corners of her husband's sarcophagus, rather than the figures of the traditional goddesses of the dead, who you normally find in that position, and of course who've now been abolished by um, Akhenaten's reforms, we find that Nefertiti. So actually even in life she becomes goddess of the dead. But for beyond this now, it's become fairly clear that rather than, as it used to be thought, dying as Um, Akhenaten's queen, she actually um, survived him as a fully-fledged female pharaoh, one of the the tiny number of such women who've existed over the years. You mentioned in your book that you haven't always subscribed to the belief that she was a pharaoh in her own right, she was a female king. Um, At what point did your opinion on this subject change and why? It's worthwhile bearing in mind that ancient Egyptian history is very much a movable feast that unlike the history of sort of more recent times, one little discovery can make a huge difference. And in fact, a lot of what we think we know about Egyptian history is wild guesswork based on a couple of little bits of information. And basically what happened was that we knew that there was a a ruler who had ruled alongside Akhenaten and then had continued on after his death. But all the evidence seemed to suggest that this was a male individual. Although 
As time went by, hints that that might not be the case um, started coming out, and also that who, the person we thought was one person who changed their name was two separate people. Um, and so this gradually came along, and as a result of actually one depiction showing Akhenaten and this co-ruler in a fairly um, intimate uh, context, it was thought that they might actually have been a gay couple. And then, finally, um, a few years ago, um, a French colleague was looking very closely at some jewellery which had been found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Um, and a lot of, quite a bit of the jewellery in Tutankhamun's tomb had been made originally for this co-ruler, Akhenaten's. And he realised that a name which had been overwritten by Tutankhamun's, but there still were some traces left, included an epithet which was beneficial for her husband. The moment you get that epithet associated with this um, this co-ruler, it becomes quite clear, and some, there's something really weird is going on, that this must be a woman. And in fact, this tied up with other work, looking at the titles and names of this individual, and we finally realised the problem was there was a male co-ruler called Smenkhare, and there was a female co-ruler called Nefenefruaten, and that Nefenefruaten seems 99% certainly to be Nefertiti, who has changed her name when she became a female king. In fact, not actually changed her name, simply shortened it, because Nefertiti's full name actually was Nefenefruaten, Nefertiti. And, and the thing is, and it, was that, it, was, it was when that new reading of the name was read out in a conference, at which point my views changed, over, changed immediately, because, you know, that was I'd been asking. Well, look, okay, I might. I, can, I know people were beginning to argue that this Cody was a female, but there was no proof of it. And then suddenly, with this re, with this reading, it became hundred percent clear it was. So therefore, I had to completely revise my views on the period. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the sort of chronology of it, is the understanding that we have. So we have Nefertiti's husband Akhenaten as as the king, and then there's a period of time where he's ruling in conjunction with somebody else, um, who we now think is Nefertiti, but also this potentially this other figure who might be his brother. Well, basically, I should point out to listeners that this is a period where almost every Egyptologist has a different view on it. So all I can say is this is my interpretation based on the last 30-odd years of work I've been doing on it. There are people who violently disagree with me, a few who sort of agree with me, I'm not sure there's any who completely agree with me, but that's that's part of the course. I don't think it's a single... If, if you want to start a, a fight, just sh- throw in the topic of Nefertiti's uh, and, and Nakanatan into a group of Egyptologists and we'll fight for the whole evening quite happily. With that, with that, sort of, with that said, um, my view is what seems to happen is that after the 12th year of Akhenaten's reign, there is evidence for a plague having come into it, a pandemic, let's use, to use sort of the, the current term. And over the next few years, his mother dies, three of his daughters die. And during this period, um, he takes first on a co-ruler called Smenkhare, probably, and this is my reading of it, is so that if he himself is carried away by this pandemic, there is still an adult king around because the heir to the throne is Tutankhamun, 
who at this stage is only a small boy. He's probably you know, four or five years old. So I think Akhenaten is really concerned that if Akhenaten dies prematurely before his son is old enough, these forces of reaction will pretty well, will pretty rapidly take away his revolution. And that makes sense. He's just implemented all this huge change, this new religion, you know, new religion, this new art and way of life that's quite unstable. People might not agree with it. And if he dies, there's a risk there, isn't there? You can sort of see the logic. Exactly. And contrary to what a lot of people have argued, it's actually quite unusual for a king to take a co-ruler like this. It used to be thought to be absolutely standard. And that's, again, an area where the evidence has chipped away at that. So his plan A was, OK, get his younger brother in, marry his younger brother, Svenkhare, to his own eldest daughter, Meritarten, and then whatever happens, if he dies, there is a senior king who can then rule alongside his young, his, his young son until he's old enough. Unfortunately, that all falls apart when Svenkhare dies fairly rapidly afterwards. Um, possibly another victim of the same thing which carried off Akhenaten's mother and three of his daughters. So he's stuck because the, the Svenkhare was probably the only adult male left of the royal family. What he does do as an interim is he promotes Nefertiti to be what I'm calling a crowned queen. So that he, she, she, is, she is able to wear full kingly regalia, but her name and title remains simply that of queen. Probably because she is, although she probably is a relation of Akhenaten's, she isn't actually a royal princess. And therefore, there probably is was some uh, resistance to the idea of making somebody who wasn't royal at all into a female king. But then a couple of months, a few months before Akhenaten dies, all that changes and she is promoted to full-scale female pharaoh. One can only wonder whether that is because Akhenaten now feels that death is on its way, whether there are plots against him. I'm sure there must have been, given the sort of, what well, no, all the um, vested interests who he was um, fighting against. Um, so therefore he does promote Nefertiti to full king as King Nefneferuaten a few months before he dies. We know it's fairly short because she's still recorded as with her queen's the name as a queen um, only a year before her husband dies. So it's somewhere in that last last year, six months or whatever, that she becomes fully fledged female pharaoh. And then when her husband dies, she is then able to do what had originally been intended, she would then be able to act as that adult um, guarantor of the revolution while the young Tutankhamun is still is still growing up. And as far as we know, was this is this an unprecedented thing to promote a woman to a position of this status? Or is there are there other um is there any other evidence of female pharaohs or female kings? We have a few, um, but they're certainly not quite of this kind of context. The first one is a few centuries earlier on, a lady called Sobek Neferu, and she seems to be the daughter of King Amenemhat III of the 12th Egyptian dynasty, who seems not to have had any sons. There's evidence that he actually tried to make his eldest daughter his heir, but she died prematurely, and it's therefore her 
who's probably her younger sister, Sobek Nefru, who becomes the first female pharaoh, on the basis that there is no male heir left. And then um, later on, during the 18th dynasty, um, a woman called Hatshepsut, who had been the regent for the young king Thutmose III, about seven years into Thutmose III's reign, and probably to the point he's about to become old enough to, ru to rule alone, she promotes herself to female pharaoh and rules alongside him for a period of time. And then the only other female pharaoh we have um, is some centuries after Nefertiti, a lady called Tawasret, who is initially again um, a regent for a young king, but then um, the young king dies suddenly, possibly even suspiciously, and she then carries on ruling as female pharaoh, carrying on his um, his regnal years. And she's probably a little bit more like um, Nefertiti because there's no evidence that she was a royal princess at all. She only was in that position because she was a, a queen dowager and there was this young pharaoh to be uh, ruled for. And so if we understand that Nefertiti became a pharaoh in her own right, what sort of things would she have been doing? What We don't know with full certainty, but we can maybe speculate somewhat. Yeah, well, in the sense that she is ruling alongside and for a, an underage um, king, she would therefore have been being carrying out the full role of pharaoh. I should point out that the this 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 theory that they're ruling together is again is not a universally held one. Some people hold that she was female pharaoh on her own for some years, and then when she dies, then Tutankhamun comes into his own. But I think it makes far more sense to see this as a this kind of uh, as a um, a co-rule. So what she so basically she's doing the full range of what pharaohs do, um, you know, for everything from foreign policy to home policy. But what we what we can see in what she's doing, and, and this is only based on one surviving inscription, in fact it's a graffito um, right on a tomb wall, that rather than acting as this guarantor of the revolution, which Akhenaten presumably thought she would do, we can find that she is actually hedging back towards a more traditional setup. Interesting. So she got into power potentially and then was like, I'm going to switch it back to how it was before. I, I think she was probably more realistic than her husband had been because she probably was well aware that nobody actually agreed with what he was doing. And she was probably a degree of self-preservation for herself and also for the young Tutankhamun, who I think was probably her, her son that it was a question of, do we actually try and manage a process whereby some of the reforms are kept, but we have to sort of let some of the old in? Or do we try and keep the revolution pure and end up um, sort of end up in a, in a dark alleyway with various assassins surrounding me? So I think that's possibly what's going on. And when you look at this one text, unfortunately, all we've got this is how we're having to sort of re to to uh, we're trying to uh, reconstruct three years of history from one say graffito. It looks as though what she does is while the Aten, the the new god, remains an important one, she brings back Ammon, who was the old king of the gods, and who'd been really the a major um, subject of her husband's um, displeasure. And. And so we find uh, a depiction, for example, of the young Tutankhamun, who at this stage is still called Tutankhaten, because when he's born he has a name incorporating the, the new god. Him, with the Aten name, worshipping 
Ammon and his consort. The sort of thing which would make um, Akhenaten clearly spin in his sarcophagus. But that seems to be what's going on here, is they're trying to tr hit that Nefertiti, as King Nefenefruaten, is trying to triangulate between the old and the new, and therefore try and maintain both what she had been involved with in the reforms, but also bring everybody else back along, back into the centre. But things didn't necessarily continue to go to plan because we, well, my, my sort of next question for you is what do we know about her death and the end of her life? Well, certainly we, we have this picture of what's going on in her in the third year of this of, of the of her co-rule with Tutankhamun. But then she disappears from view and we know that she's not buried as a pharaoh because most of her pharaonic equipment include a lot of her jewellery, um, one of the coffins, the containers for the mummified intestines, are all repurposed for Tutankhamun. So it looks as though she dies, she is buried in some other way, and that stuff which she had been accumulating for her kingly burial, and because because kings, uh, well, everybody sort of starts putting together their funerary equipment you know, as soon as they can afford to do so, is all simply has the names scratched out and is put into Tutankhamun's material. Now, if some of us are right in identifying the mummy of Nefertiti, and this, like so many things, is a big point of debate. If we're right about which mummy hers actually is, she died a horrible death. Is this the, the mummy known as the younger lady? It's the so-called younger lady found in tomb KV35, lying alongside a mummy which may, also, may actually be that of Akhenaten's mother. Um, though, so this, this is all... One of these things is a matter of deb debate. There's a, a lot of if issues around DNA studies. Yeah, it's all it's all fairly horrible. But this is where this this is the picture which which it, which for some of us anyway we agree that um, it's her mummy. Basically, the whole um, left hand side of her face has been smashed in. The whole of the side of the of the of the of the upper jaw is gone. It was originally thought this was simply a result of damage by tomb robbers. This mummy was found over a hundred years ago, and we know that tomb robbers did a lot of damage to bodies, um, hacking the wrappings off to get at the jewellery which uh, adorned them. However, when the mummy, this mummy was CAT scanned a few years ago in Cairo, um, the, the pathologist work it, looking at it said that actually, no, this, this wasn't the case. This damage had been done at the time of death because of the way that various fragments of bone and so on had found their way into the sinuses, which they wouldn't have done if, this was a, if it was a dry, a dry corpse when the damage had been done. So it appears she received a massive blow to the face, which which basically smashed all the bones in it. And of course, when the when the body then dried out and was mummified, that's why the hole. She wouldn't have had a hole in her face, at the, but it would have been severely lacerated and everything inside smashed. And that and that kind of tr massive trauma would have resulted in huge loss of blood and death fairly rapidly. So on the basis of that and the fact that she was denied the burial as a female pharaoh, it all suggests that her attempts at triangulating things, attempts at trying to almost square the circle between the era of reform and revolution, complete and, and, and um, reaction, failed. And that, although it's possible, I suppose, that this was simply an accident, and once she had accidentally um, 
lost her life, then then the new powers that be could you know, wind things back and and so on. It all seems rather too um, too unlikely. And if she did have an accident, it was an arranged accident. It's a fascinating narrative. I know, I know you say that um, there's a lot of disagreement, but it's, I love the story of this woman who marries into the royal family and rules alongside this king who instigates all of this religious change and this new these new you know this new culture. Um, and then something happens where he's panicking about keeping his power so she's elevated to a position and then he dies and then she's she's having to carry this on but sort of not upset the balance that he's created and then she potentially dies in this horrible graphic way um it's a really fascinating narrative if we if we take this as as true um, then what happened after, after her death? She's potentially died in this violent way. What happened with um, in in Egypt? The politics did they reverse all the way back to how things were before? With with her death, yeah, basically, and, and the rather than her ruling for the young king, he's still underage, um, and two people then start ruling on her on his behalf. One is a man called I, who is an army general and may actually have been Nefertiti's father. That was interesting because you also posit that he might have been involved with. Well, you know, it could be one of those things. He actually plotted to kill his daughter. One does wonder whether or not he was one of these people who said, "Look, I'm not." I don't know anything about this. If it happens, I knew nothing about it. I was on holiday, and there's, there's a, one of the one of the regents for in, in Scotland during Mary Queen of Scots um, minority was a sim. He used to look through his fingers at what went on. So there, he was. He was never there when the bad things were done. So it might be that he was aware that there was a plot, but decided that he would not intervene. And there's a, he rules along with another general, a general called Horemheb. And there, this basic, this duo then rule on behalf of Tutankhamun for the rest of his, uh, rest of his life. The, and it, what happens, you can see that, that the death of Nefruaten does sort of allow everything to completely bounce back because Tutankhaten becomes Tutankhamun. His wife, who is a daughter of Nefertiti, be, moves from being Ankesinpa-Aten to Ankesinpa-Amun. And there is a great big steel, a big a slab of stone is erected in a number of um, temples which decree a, basically a return to, in fact, in, more, in modern terms, to return to the full funding of Egyptian religion. Because it looks like, a, apart from attacking Amun, Akhenaten didn't actually attack the other gods, he simply defunded them. So therefore, their temples no longer got the, the state subsidies which it used to, and therefore they're left to wither to wither away. It's only it's only Ammon who Akhenaten had a major thing about actually is attacked. So what the, effectively this um, stealer effectively says that we're going to res- restore all the funding, and where images, particularly those of Ammon, have been destroyed under Akhenaten, those will be remanufactured. So we have actually have a huge number of statues of the god Ammon with Tutankhamun's features, because when a king is making statues of a god, it's using the um, features of himself, and goddesses are shown 
with the face of his wife. So that's so there we've got quite a lot of that is done. And basically that seems to be how things carry on until Tutankhamun's own death um, five years later at the age of 18. Whether or not that was another um, accident, because 18 is when the king would take up full powers in his own right, we have no idea. Um, the death, the cause of death of Tutankhamun is a matter of debate, although possibly a compound fracture of the leg seems to be the most widely um, accepted one on the basis of the various examinations of his mummy, in which case that could be a genuine accident. Um, you know, 18-year-old guys tend to sort of be a little, believe they're indestructible and, you know, he could have done something very, very silly. You know, it would have been a compound, and of course, a compound fracture in those days, rapidly it get infected and you've had it. Yeah, not the same as today. And your stance is that, Nef- and this is again something that's up for debate, um, is that Nefertiti was Tutankhamun's mother, but we don't have... We don't necessarily know that 100%, do we? There are possible other options. Yeah. Well, the, th- the thing about it is that we are pretty certain that his father was Akhenaten. There is a inscription of Tadankhamun as a prince calling himself a king's son in a context really where he can't really be the son of anybody else. Although, of course, there are Egyptologists who would differ. But I think the majority of us happy that he was that's the disclaimer for this podcast that some may some may disagree well yeah absolutely i think almost any podcast on ancient egypt would be has a degree of though this period i think is some of the is one of the worst of them all from that point of view now akhenaten we know has two there are two wives who he's known to have there is nefertiti and there is a lady called kia now we've got lots of depictions of nefertiti with six up to six daughters but no sons and on that basis, people said, well, in that case, if you're not showing a son, well, he couldn't, she couldn't have had one. She's showing all these daughters were one. Oh, therefore, Takiya must be um, his, his mother. And in fact, that's been made a fact in many, many books and TV programmes. Yet the problem is we have pictures of, of Kia with her child, who is a girl. There are no signs of her with anybody other than one single daughter. So if you're denying the possibility that Nefertiti is Tutankhamun's uh, mother on the basis he's never shown with her, well, you can't... You know, you, 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 it's you it's know, the you same logic. The same for, yeah, Kia, yeah. for Kia. And the thing is also, when people who say this, they're at, it shows um, a, a lack of understanding of Egyptian royal depictions. Because actually, until the time of Akhenaten... There are no examples whatsoever of any royal princes being shown with their parents, ever, in the whole of Egyptian history. It's only subsequently when a new dynasty comes to power and they are trying to sort of emphasise that they are as royal as the next person, even though they're not, when you start having depictions of royal sons. Prior to that, there's not a single example in the previous 1,500 years of Egyptian history. Oh, Interesting. Can you, if you can show me an example of a royal prince on any temple wall in the previous 1,500 years. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Cleopatra and whole, you know, just any a, a random Egyptian female name. So, or, so she is universally recognised, but not necessarily understood who that actually is, which is an interesting facet of it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned that Akhenaten had a second wife. Was that, was it normal for, for kings or pharaohs to have multiple wives? Um, was there a difference in power between these wives? How did that work? Most kings had multiple wives, but there was one who would we would call in our terms the queen, who has the title of king's great wife. Yes, great wife. That's Nefertiti. Yeah, and that and that's that's something which is brought in a few centuries prior to a few centuries prior to that. There was simply a title of king's wife, and you could have a number of those. But by the beginning of the 18th dynasty, there was a very clear there was going to be the boss wife, and that was um, Nefertiti. And in fact, some only only some kings had other wives. There are some who, as far as we can tell, only ever had one 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 wife. His king's great wife, without any sort of subsidiary ones. Kia is weird in the sense that the title she holds is completely unique. Normally, you've got the king's great wife, and then you've got kings various kings' wives, the junior ones. But Kia is king's greatly beloved wife. So the fact that she holds a completely unique title makes one wonder exactly what her her, her, her status is. Uh, it's been suggested she might have been a foreign princess, uh, but there's something sort of slightly unusual about her. And then also we find that she is um, disgraced as well. She appears on monuments and then probably somewhere around the 12th year, we can't be absolutely certain, her images are all hacked out of the walls where they'd appeared. Her name is taken away. Um, and then all her monuments are then usurped with the, her name and also the name of her daughter also replaced by those of Akhenaten's um, daughters. Now, this led to, a, for a period, in fact, it's still to be found um, amongst some tour guides in Egypt, the legend that Akhenaten and Nefertiti had a falling out got divorced or something like that. And this is a good example, I think, of how um, Egyptian history works or doesn't work in the sense of how we put it together. Because back in the early 1920s, excavations at the new capital city that Akhenaten had built, a place we call now called Tel Lamarna, um, in those days it was called um, Akhetaten, um, they found a temple and they found 
depictions with a king and queen, but the king, but the queen's uh, figure had been mutilated, recarved, and the name had been cut out. Now, at this time in the early 1920s, the only wife we knew of of Akhenaten was Nefertiti, and therefore the archaeologists put two and two, two and two together and made five. So, therefore, in their report. They stated that there clearly had been some kind of, of falling out between the two of them um, and that she may have been in disgrace during her, her last years of her life. Um, nobody actually noticed that these erasures were only in this one particular temple. They, didn't, they, they seemed to miss the fact that her name was perfectly intact everywhere else at the city and everywhere else in Egypt. But... You know, this decision, this was made. At the, it was at the same time where they had discovered, I mentioned this earlier on, this depiction of Akhenaten, his co-ruler, in an intimate um, context. We now know that simply Akhenaten, his wife. But it was thought that there might, that this was a gay re, re, um, relationship, and therefore people then started embroidering this idea of Akhenaten and Nefertiti having had a fallout by saying it because he'd run off with his boyfriend and she was unhappy about it. And this has found its way into, into the history books. It's found its way, it's, it's still what you're told when you go, by, by, at least by some tour guides, when you go to Amarna today. It's also found its way into books on, on gay history. And in fact, and, but then in the 1960s, Kia was discovered and it was realised it was all complete rubbish. Unfortunately, by that time, the damage had been done. And once things have gone into books... And it has meant that we've now got this whole slew, slough of, of history um, of Akhenaten and his boyfriend, which unfortunately has not been a fact or even a hypothesis since the 1960s, at least amongst Egyptologists. But unfortunately, it's all got out there. And you know, once, once these kind of zombie facts, as, I'm, as I call them, are out there, it's very difficult to kill them. Mm. I suppose it's one, one of the big challenges of studying this period as well is, is, as you say, it was such a long time ago that the, it's not like studying the Tudor period where we've got such a wealth of, of literature and you can really piece together stories. It's just the evidence is, is a bit thinner on the ground. Um, very much so. And most of the evidence is equivocal. Um, some time ago, I sort of likened it to trying to picture what's going on by using a broken mirror with the pieces not actually in the right location either. So you're seeing little glimpses of things. Now, when you find an inscription, it's only one, you know, it's perhaps one-tenth of the inscription which ever existed, or probably even less than that. So you're just trying, you're seeing this, you've got this tiny little, this little picture, and you're trying to then imagine what the rest of it is. And sometimes, and sometimes, and you, some, you can produce a great sort of, you know, a great scenario. And it may set, may, may work, may, it seems like it works. You know, you therefore put it in as, you might say probably in sort of scholarly books, but in a more popular one, you simply say that is the fact. And all of a sudden, another fragment of the mirror turns up, or you can, you, and you suddenly realise that actually looking at it from the other way, it was nothing like that at all. You put it completely wrong, as I did over the, over the gender of, of um, Nefenefruaten. And there are various other things where I think over the years I've sort of backtracked on because it all made sense you know, 25, 30 years ago when I first was working on it. But now, um, no, sorry, another thing is found. Now, this whole question about Nefertiti's um, sort of how when she became female pharaoh, 
when she was last seen. Well, it was only in 2012 when we found an inscription showing her still as a queen in year 16 of Akhenaten. Previous to that, the last time we'd seen it was year 13. And although three years doesn't seem like a lot, it is in the context of what's going on. It, it, it does say, it make, as, a, as a historian, it's good fun. But it does mean that sometimes you end up when you're trying to explain something to somebody you know, in a pub or whatever and that, who, who know a little bit hang on but it wasn't so and so no sorry that's all changed so what's like what's been a, a really key example of this in the case of Nefertiti where everything just unraveled all of a sudden I think the key part was this recognition that she was still around as a queen in year 16 that was one of the crucial things about understanding how the whole thing worked um, and also the the the, under, the, rec- the universal recognition that Nefertiti Arten was her, because up until that point it, it changed our whole understanding of what Nefertiti could be, because up until then all we could see was her effectively as the wife of the king and the mother of his children. Yeah, a passive, was, more of a passive role. Yeah, you couldn't really say, any, and, the very, and then with the discovery of the of the of the um, bust in nineteen twelve, suddenly she became you know, an international sort of fa- uh, style icon, I suppose. But that was all. She was she was a clothes horse. She was that's just sort of she was she was a one a two dimensional figure, and it was only that recognition that she had turned into a king, and then understanding what that king had done suddenly makes the whole picture a very very different one. Could you tell us tell us the story of the discovery of her bust? And then secondly, why why did this have such a massive impact? People loved it. Like, why did they... Like, it was like... Um, well, they say tut mania, but it was also a bit of Nefertiti mania as well. Okay. Okay, basically what was going on in the years bef- bef- from 1905 until 1914, there was a German archaeological team working at Amarna, which, as I mentioned earlier on, was the capital city which Akhenaten built specifically. It's almost it's almost the Egyptian Canberra, Brasilia, or if you want to be sort of unkind, uh, Egyptian Milton Keynes. It was a it was a it was a city built in the middle of nowhere from scratch, and amongst the uh, various buildings which were excavated there was one which was the house and workshop of a sculptor. And basically, when the city had been abandoned, which happened once um, everything started being returning to normal, so once once Tadang. Arten had become Tutankhamun, the place was abandoned. Everybody sort of moved out, and the sculptor had this workshop full of sculptures, which clearly were of people who were now dead or had been discredited. So effectively, he could have locked the door and went off. And over the year, and it wasn't, this workshop wasn't even, wasn't seen again until 1912. And amongst the th- and a huge amount of material was found in this workshop, including some amazing pieces of art. But the most amazing of the whole lot was this bust of Nefertiti. It was clearly intended to be the master um, portrait of the Queen for use in this particular workshop, because it wasn't part of a statue. So it actually was a freestanding bust, which is something which isn't normally found in Egyptian art. And it also in the same room, but broken because it had fallen off a shelf, was a similar one of Akhenaten. So there were clearly these two busts which had been in the middle of the room, and therefore that's what everybody was working from. And what's remarkable about it is the sheer naturalism of the thing. It's painted, um, so you've got it's, it's wearing its uh, um, its crown, but the beautifully modelled features, uh, delicately painted. Um, the eyes are inlaid. It's very modern looking. You would. It's like a, a fashion 
icon of the 20th century you would say yes that looks that looks very modern because what's hap- what happens with with egyptian art i mentioned earlier on that initially the early form of, of the art style of this period had been sort of ugly as time went by it became more refined um it became um it still what it still was revolutionary and it was unlike what had gone previously but it's a much more most more naturalism rather than this in your face stuff and i think earlier on I'd said something about sort of I liken a minor art to punk rock. It's almost like punk rock moving into new wave or new romantic. It's still part of that continuum of something different. So yes, so this thing of Nefertiti, it looks completely unlike anything uh, from previously from Egyptian art, and say it looks remarkably modern. And clearly, it is an absolutely amazing piece of work. Now. According to the rules under which the the archaeologists were working at that time, everything had to be divided between the excavators and the Egyptian government, with a basic rule being that the two shares should be roughly equal in quality and quantity, but anything which was an absolute unique piece should had to remain in Egypt. And at the end of each excavation season, an inspector of antiquities would come to the site and would look at everything and decide what was go- who was getting what. On this occasion, the inspector in question, a man called um, uh, Lefebvre, um, came to um, the, uh, the site and was shown the full list of objects found and also photographs of the objects, uh, with their, which he, he could then go and actually check out the object itself. Now, what does seem to happen is that the photograph he was shown of the head was not a complete one. It ah, was just sort of so a he didn't realise how amazing it was. Perhaps precisely. <laughs> um, he, also, also the fact it's it's made of stone but covered with a layer of plaster. Um, it was recorded as a plaster head rather than a, a, a piece of sculpture. Now, what Lefebvre should have then, of course, have done is gone and checked these, these things out. But I suspect he had had a, had a good lunch. Um, he'd got these pictures, he'd been shown the photographs, the lists and so on. Um, a lot of the stuff had already been packed in crates, so this thing was probably at the bottom of a crate and you could only look down on it. And he signed off on it. He signed off and said, well, basically, OK, all these plaster, these plaster heads which you found uh, can go to Berlin. Um, oh, and this one is on the list as well, so fine, all that can go. And everything, and, and so the stuff all went off to Berlin. It kind of fills, fills me with dread slightly, the thought of this beautiful bus getting packed. Like, I just imagine it getting dropped and shattering or something. No, it was, it was actually hand-carried back by the son of the person who was funding the excavations. So Borchardt, who was the head of the excavations, was knew what he'd got. And what's very what adds to the suspicion that that Lefebvre hadn't actually been cheated as such, but had been sort of steered away from it, is that when the stuff arrived in in um, Berlin and includes some amazing other masterpieces, some of these, although they're made of car of uh, uh, plaster, they are really quite they're really quite something. These things. Although most of them went immediately on display, Borchardt said, don't put Nefertiti on display. She was seen by the Kaiser and a few very, very highly placed people, but she was then sort of put away in a cupboard. 
And it wasn't until 1923, so that's 10 years after she was found and, and brought to Germany, was she actually put on display. And then when the curator of the Berlin Museum at the time wanted to put, put her out, Borchardt pleaded with him not to do so because Borchardt knew that... Someone's going to be like, why is the, this in Berlin? <laughs> the, the, the soft stuff would hit the fan, shall we say, uh, when, that, when that happened. And of course it did. You know, the, this, this thing appears and suddenly the world goes, wow. Because the thing is, Borchardt had, had published a photograph of the head, but only the face in an article back before the First World War. So he'd been sort of doing, you know, sl- you know, he'd been using sleight of hand. And I do wonder whether he was worried, whether really he'd done the right thing, whether he should have simply said to Lefebvre, look, this is a gorgeous thing, look forward to seeing it in the Cairo Museum. Yeah. They did, but he didn't. Um, and in 1923, Schaefer, who was the curator of the museum in Berlin, put it out over... Um, Protester of Borchardt, and again, again, the Egyptian, the Egyptian authorities got rather um, unhappy about this, shall we say? And um, Borchardt, who was trying to get back to do to work in the field again after sort of Germany had basically been frozen out of Egyptology by the First World War, um, had an interview, a long interview with the head of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, who was a Frenchman called Lacour. And in fact, what, when I used to work um, in, in an office, we used to be called an interview without biscuit. <laughs> Um, and basically, clearly it was a mistake. Poor old Lacoe, he'd had, he'd had a bad... No, sorry, Lefebvre had a bad day. Let's, let's just admit we all made a mistake in 1912. Um, she can come back to Egypt and, hey, it'll all be fine. Unfortunately, the... Um, well, the Prussian government, because the museum in Berlin was under the what was then a separate state of Germany, Prussia, uh, said no. They wouldn't, wouldn't give it back. And therefore, and that's how things sort of remained until the Nazis came to power. When actually Goering um, proposed giving the thing back to Egypt, because at that point the Nazis were trying to get make friends. Yeah, she was a bar- she became a bargaining chip in in the Second Very World War. So. That's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah, but say so, say so Goering agreed that it should be given back to Egypt as the King of Egypt's birthday present. And in fact, he was unofficially told this was happening. And the only thing it required for it to go back to Cairo was it to be signed off by Adolf Hitler, who refused. Basically, said, basically uh, Hitler said, no, she stay, she's, staying in, she's staying in Berlin. And that's where she's been ever since. So, you know, she's there and, um, and has become a, an, international, an international icon. Yeah, definitely. Um, she's like, I mean, she's arguably, she's one of the most widely recognised figures of ancient Egypt, I, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, in, to some degree, but although people recognise her, often they don't know who she is. Um, and that's, so therefore people have got, you know, have a little Nefertiti pendant around their neck. They don't actually know who she is. She might, they might know it's Nefertiti, but who she was, what she did. And I have to, um, rather sadly, some of my students over the years haven't recognised her either. I was doing a, um, a slide recognition um, class test and she was amongst them. And I thought, well, who is this and where is, what museum? She, I thought that's at least one guaranteed mark for everybody. And over two thirds got it wrong. How interesting. So recognisable, but not known. Yeah, recognised, but yeah, not known. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, so the majority of those knew it was Nefertiti, but didn't realise she was in Berlin, which is sort of... But some of them think, you know, you know, Cleopatra and a whole, you know, just any a, a random Egyptian female name. So, or, so she is universally recognised, 
but not necessarily understood who that actually is, which is an interesting facet of it. I suppose as we're, we're sort of ending, uh, approaching the end of the podcast now, um, I suppose my final question to you is you've, you've recently wrote this book, Nefertini, Queen and Pharaoh of Egypt, Her Life and Afterlife. Um, what are you hoping to add to our understanding of, of her, of Egypt's sun queen? What I was trying to do in writing the book was sort of two things. One was to actually provide a fully up-to-date version of her because, as I say, there's been a lot of new discoveries, new interpretations over the past few um, after the past couple of decades, none of which have really made it into sort of standard books on her. But also I wanted in the book the afterlife part of it, was really to try and say to give people a better idea of how we came to know about her. Because so often when you're writing a book of biography stroke history, you tend to simply say, well, this is, the, these, this is what the um, answer is, what is the result of it all. Whereas what I was trying to do in this book, and also in the other books in the same series, because I'm doing, there's a, it's a number of, uh, of books which have been published and will be published in the same series, is the second chunk of it is to try and take people through how we got from the point of not knowing a person called Nefertiti existed to, the, to having the sort of the global superstar we've got today. That was Aidan Dodson. His book, Nefertiti, Queen and Pharaoh of Egypt, Her Life and Afterlife, is out now, published by the American University in Cairo Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear what it's like making weapons for historical dramas. (laughs) 